Let's do this. The Cult of Hockey podcast by the faithful and for the faithful. I'm David Staples of the Edmonton Journal, and I'm here today with Bruce McCurdy on a what I understand is an absolutely sweltering day here in Edmonton, although I haven't been outside yet. So, how are you doing? today, David. Yeah. I haven't been outside myself yet, but I'll be going out to my walk probably in the heat of the day now. Late working on a project last night. Yeah, I'll be going out late uh, to do the stairs. Yesterday I was doing the stairs in um, Willowdale, which are the toughest stairs in Edmonton and the River Valley. Edmonton's River Valley is um, a deep valley. It's lined by stairs, and lots of people use them for exercises, including me. And it was a great thing to do during the pandemic, especially because everything else was closed. Including the stairs, actually. You weren't supposed to go, so I would go late, late at night when no one else was there. Anyway, I saw... Kelly Bookberger there doing the stairs, Bruce. Oh, yeah? He looked like he was ready to go into the Roman Colosseum and kill Maximus. I mean, he was... He... I, I was... I didn't recognize him at first. And um, I thought, is that like an NHL player? That guy is fit. Unbelievable. How he's 56 years old and he's unbelievably fit. And he said... My friend uh, Brian struck up a conversation with him and, and Bookberger um, said he's... Um, he wants to keep up with the young guys. He's still he's coaching at Laval as an assistant coach in the Montreal Canadiens farm system. So he wants to keep up with the young guys. So good for Kelly Bookberger, man. He is he is a exemplar uh, um, example for us all in terms of maintaining fitness. And yeah, uh, it, it surprises me not even a tiny bit that he would be maintaining a high level of fitness. Like he's he was always one of those uh, go hard to the uh, you know the max. On, on those sorts of, uh, of you know, little edges and so on. That uh, that was one of the things that drove him, a player of, let's call him modest talent, uh, to uh, be, a, a, you know, turn a, a low draft uh, opportunity into a long NHL career and ultimately the captaincy of a, of a, a famous NHL club. And, uh, you know, it was uh, his... Uh, his drive was always first rate, and that's the kind of thing that pushes. Hey, Bruce, your sound is just a little fuzzy for some reason. Is there like I can hear you, but as you're speaking, there's static or something on the line, and I don't know if people are going to hear that or not. But I'm I'm hearing it every time you speak. Just a little bit of fuzziness there. Is it plugged in properly, or just maybe check your connection? See if that works. And, I, and I'll uh, tell the uh, listeners as you're doing that what we're going to be um, talking about today. Huge deal. Uh, the Calgary Flames have traded or excuse me, signed Nazem Kadri to a seven year, seven by seven million dollar deal. Nazem Kadri to the Flames. It looks like they've moved out Sean Monaghan to the Montreal Canadiens to make room for Kadri. We still don't know the what the price, the poison pill that uh, Montreal had to pay to move out an underperforming contract like Sean Monaghan. But um, we're guessing that it might be fairly substantial. There's rumors that it's a first-round pick at this point, but we're not completely sure about that. Uh, Monaghan, let's see, what did he have left on his deal? He's 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 off the Calgary list on Camp Friendly. We'll also be talking about the orders possibly getting Sam Gagné about uh, Darnell Nurse's latest injury uh, status report. 
We'll talk about cheap contracts in the NHL. We'll talk briefly about Brad Holland, what he brings to the Oilers. And we'll talk briefly about some of the prospects we've been writing about. Let's start with Kadri, though, Bruce. What's your take? What do you make, you know, what's your gut instant reaction Amundo on the Flames getting Nazem Kadri? Nazem Kadri? Yeah. Uh, my reaction is, oh, no. <laughs> to be honest with you. Kadri is, uh, uh, um, you know, has, a, has a long uh, track record of being an effective player that doesn't mind bending, if not outright smashing rules to uh, to do things. Uh, he he's um, uh, he's a really good fit for them. I have to say, uh, I, I'm very impressed, uh, at least in the short term. And of course, uh, these contracts have a long, long shelf life. But I'm really impressed with in the short term with the job that uh, Brad Tree Living has done under extremely trying circumstances, uh, having his two uh, American-born uh, superstars from his team last year, one of them walking without any warning at all, really, and Johnny Goodrow that left him in a tough spot. And the other, Matt Kachuk, uh, who has some uh, cadre in his own game in terms of edginess and, and uh, uh, you know, willingness to... As I, as I was saying to my brother in a phone call yesterday, he says it's not that Matthew Kachuk will go to the dirty areas, it's that he defines the dirty areas, right? If he's in them, they're dirty. Um, <laughs> and Kadri is, is much the same. And to me, like for a guy from dealing from an extreme position of weakness, uh, tree living, with Goodrow gone and only cap space there, which is, I mean, that's cap, cap space is important. And and uh, at one point, Kachuk saying, "I'm I'm on my way out," you know. And I, I thought, well, if they wind up trading him for Joffrey Lupo, Ladislav Sneed, and three future high draft picks, then it's going to be three to twenty years for <laughs> Calgary to pull out of this. And he wound up trading uh, Kachuk's what wound up Kachuk's future value for the present value of uh, Jonathan Uberdahl and Mackenzie Weger from Florida and a first-round pick. That was, I thought that was a fantastic trade by Trevor. And uh, he wound up, uh, Uberdahl doesn't replace Kachuk, but he replaced his good role almost perfectly. Like, they're very similar. Their stats are very similar for years. Uh, they both tied for second behind McDavid, I'll add, uh, in the scoring race last year, 115 points each. And really, they should carry on from the loss of of Goudreau uh, without much of a, a of a hiccup because uh, Uberdo is pretty much that player. In fact, I noticed that Calgary gave Uberdo the identical contract that they reportedly offered to uh, Johnny Goudreau eight years times uh, uh, 10.5. But that still left a massive hole where Kachuk had been. Uh, now they kind of filled that, I think. Uh, with uh, with Kadri, like he's the same kind of player that you can, you know, make you swear when you're watching him play on the other team, and yet you go, man, that guy is effective. I wish we had a guy like that on our team, you know. And uh, that's I know you and I both thought that about Matthew Kachuk at times. And Kadri Kadri is, uh, I'll tell you, David, two of the times I've been the maddest in watching regular season hockey in the last ten years was when. 
uh, both in overtime. One when Nazem Kadri hauled down uh, Ryan Nugent Hopkins in uh, uh, in Toronto territory, leading to a three-on-one and the winning goal for the Leafs in overtime, with the referees somehow not seeing the uh, infraction. And then the other was this past season, also in overtime in Colorado this time, where Nazem Kadri got got into a physical battle with Darnell Nurse and somehow managed to pull Nurse's helmet right off his head, forcing Nurse off the ice, while Colorado comes surging back on a 2-1-1, scores the winning goal that time. Both times I was just uh, just fuming mad that they got away with, you know, a clear infraction to my eyes. And I, I, you know, in the light of 10 years of distance from the first one of those, I'm still mad. You know, like, that was brutal. Hockey Night in Canada, Toronto, lose on a play like that. So, I mean, Cowdery has that capability of A, being effective, B, getting away with all kinds of crap, and uh, C, getting in your face all the time. And I'll tell you this, the uh, rivalry between, the personal rivalry between Nazem Cowdery and Evander Kane is going to be intense. But Indeed. But do have a player like that, you know, in that sense. So. Yeah. The one difference between Bruce, between Cowdery and Kachuk, See, Kachuk's 24, yeah, oh, yeah. and Kadri is going to be 32 this year. So I'm going to, you've highlighted, and I don't disagree with anything you've said about it, the, the impact on the Flames. And, you know, I would add to that, you know, they brought in, well, you mentioned Mackenzie Weger. I thought that the Flames' real weakness last year in the playoffs, well, there was a lot of weaknesses, but um, I thought defensively they just couldn't stop the Oilers. And I, I, they, I, I felt they really, really, really missed Mark Giordano. And um, they didn't have anyone capable of shutting down McDavid. Now I don't know about Mackenzie Weger. I haven't seen him play enough to know. Like, but we've seen McDavid have trouble with fast, puck-moving, quick defensemen like Josh Morrissey, um, McCarr, and Taves in Colorado this year. So Weger could be the kind of defenseman, not the big Bobby Clobber type, but the the fast, smart, defensive, defensively responsible defenseman who could. Have, pose trouble for Connor McDavid and and I don't know the answer answer to that. I'm going to take the downside or the positive side for Edmonton on this trade though. Um first of all the Avs didn't get Kadri on a short-term deal. And, and my main worry in this whole Kadri thing was that Kadri was going to sign like a one-year or two-year deal at a major discount to play with Colorado. Giving that team it like this is the Oilers Stanley Cup window. These next three years, Dreisaitl's last three years on his great deal, um, which we're going to get to in a little bit. This is it, Bruce. The orders in these three years, I think, if they're going to keep this team together, if they're going to re-sign McDavid and Dreisaitl, I think they got to win a cup in the next three years. So if Kadri had signed, I don't think it, I won't say that as an absolute, they could still sign those two players without winning a cup, but I just think it will really help. Honestly, it'll really, really help they win a cup in terms of convincing these two guys to stay in Edmonton. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, Colorado would have been a lot better with Kadri in the next few years. Calgary will be a lot better. Calgary's going to be an interesting team in the, in that if chemistry means anything, and I think it actually means a lot. I'm I'm list, reading this book. Can't remember the exact title. It's by Craig Custance. It's on. He interviewed all these coaches who won Stanley Cups or Olympic gold medals like Babcock and um, Joel Kenville and um, uh, uh, what's his name, Laviolette? 
not Lavia. He didn't interview Lavia. What's that? Oh, Tortorella, um, Claude Julien. And and what hits you over the head again and again and again is the team building that went on. The long-term, difficult team building chemistry that had to come together for teams to win the Stanley Cup. So the Flames are an interesting team in that they're going to have all new pieces. And I'm not sure how sure all those new pieces are going to work together. Um, I think that's a real unknown. And I think it's a big issue. I think it's a bigger issue than people think. This is like an ultimate kind of fantasy team. Like you lose two players and who do you replace them with? You bring in these exciting players. Might not work out like everybody thinks. We'll see. Um, We'll see about that. The age, though, of Huberdeau and Kadri is in the long term for the Calgary Flames. Now, players can defy expectations. There are a number of players who have been really strong through their in their 30s. Um, you know, putting up great scoring numbers, very effective two-way hockey players in their 30s. And it's not, when you look at really good NHL players, it's not that unusual. It might be a third of them. Um, are still going strong at 34, 35, 36, or maybe even half of them, like of the really the really great superstars. But what we generally see, Bruce, is players start to drop off around the age of 30. They lose 10% or so a year, sometimes more dramatic than that um, in terms of the loss of performance. And um, they, they get injured and they get banged up and they and they can't go. So the Flames have made this massive risky bet I just think there's huge, there's always huge risk. I mean, Oscar Clefbaum was signed in his 20s and there was huge risk of a player getting injured on a long-term deal. These two deals, $10.5 million per year for eight years for Huberto, 7-7 for Kadri. Kadri, Kadri looks like he's going to be uh, 38 or 39 in the last year of the deal. Uh, Huberto, 30, 37, 38. Man alive, Bruce. These, la- these, these deals are present huge risk to the flames. Yes. And if you think, if people think I'm making too much of this, I just looked at the la- at the buyout, cap-friendly buyout calculator for the last five years. Here's players, on the day they were signed, those the, the, both the players, the team, and the fan base would have been full of optimism about these players. Here's a list in the last five years of some major buyouts that have gone on. Franz Nielsen, Brett Connolly, and the Oilers wanted Brett Connolly. Everyone was excited about Brett Connolly. Martin Jones, James Neal in Calgary, Zach Parise, Ryan Suter, Corey Schneider, Kyle Turris, Justin Abdelkader, Bobby Ryan, Kevin Shattenkirk, Andre Secker, Corey Perry, Troy Brower, Mike Camilleri, Benoit Puglia, Scott Hartnell, Dan, Gir- Dan Girardi. It is not, and this doesn't even cover players who haven't been bought out, like Andrew Ladd and and Kyle Ocpozo and Milan Lucic, who haven't covered the bet of their deals, but haven't been bought out for one reason or another. It is it is an extremely, extremely risky move to sign players to long-term contracts to these seven, eight-year deals. And that risk is greatly exacerbated when you sign them into their 30s, and especially their late 30s. So good luck to Calgary on that. I The, the chances of both of them covering the bet is like... Five percent, I'm going to say ten percent. The chances of one of them doing it is probably um, twenty, thirty percent. I'm guessing. So, like you know, about a third of these, you know, Huberto is a pretty good player. Cadre plays a rugged game though, and those kind of rugged guys tend to get ground down earlier. So that's my cautionary 
note on this for the Flames. I mean, everybody's well aware of this. And Jim Matheson's right now on Twitter saying, like, the job of the NHL GM is to win now. Like, forget all this stuff about down the road. And I actually don't agree with that. It's to the the job of the NHL GM. Yeah, you when you have a chance to win, you go for it. But you also must keep an eye on uh, the future of the team. You're letting down the fan base and the owner if you do not. So um, I, I don't really agree. It's all about winning now. It's certainly a big part of it. But you you can't blow your brains out on this thing. I'm not, and I'm not suggesting Calgary has, but they're getting close. Well, here's the sad fact, David, of the, I think, 18 names you just listed. Three of those buyouts were precipitated by the Edmonton Oilers. Yes. Sakura uh, and Neil. And, yeah. Uh, you know, they, they finally got the Pouliot. Um, the lingering uh, uh, dead cap of Pouliot off the books, but the other two remain, and it's and that's a that's a that's a killer too. We want to talk about hurting your team long term. I mean, it's it's just the offshoot of what you're saying about buyouts. Those those cap hits linger for a very long time because they're the term is doubled at the point of the cap hit, so it takes a long time to get away from uh, a mistake like that. Uh, I'm uh, I'm more on the path of, you know, what have what have they done right now? I mean, my concern as a fan is what's going to happen next year, and the Calgary Flames have gone from you know a first place team that looked like things might be coming apart at the seam, to a team that has re-engineered, uh, but has has uh, uh, done a pretty good job of filling those two holes. I mean, Huberdeau. Of the 2011 draft, Uberdeau and Goudreau were both picked in that draft, and they are actually the second and third highest scorers of that draft, with only Nikita Kucherov barely ahead of the two of them, like 616, 613, 609. Like, it's a real, you could a blanket over them. Both Uberdeau and Goudreau scored their 500th point last year and their 600th point. You don't often see that in these kind of, when you're tracking milestones. Like, guys with two majors in one year, but they, they both had 115-point seasons. So, to me, that's a wash. Uh, and the, I agree. I'd uh, rather Kuchuk, have Kuchuk, they're, they're actually. They're hugely going to miss Kachuk. And, and Florida, obviously, he was a massive target for them, given the price they were prepared to pay. And given the, uh, the you know, the contract that they, that they immediately gave him, uh, which bought a lot of RFA years, and it was still eight times 9.5, I think it was. And so, uh, uh, Kadri is, uh, you know, he replaces a lot of what Kachuk brought. And the wild card for me is Uyghur that they got. They just brought in the first rate, you know, the first pairing defenseman off the Presence Trophy winning team. This is a real player. Yeah. And 22-23, the three guys, Uberdo. And uh, Uyghur and Kadri, the the combined cap hit for the three of them is only around sixteen million dollars for this coming year. Yeah, for this coming year because those uh, the two from Florida both had a year left on brilliant bargain contracts: five point nine for Uberdo, three point two for for Uyghur. and they were one two on the Panthers in ice time, and you know they're like big time players for them, and Calgary, you know. In getting out from, you know, Florida's actually playing Kachuk more for this upcoming season than they would have paid both of uh, Uberdo and Uyghur combined. So Calgary got the, the benefit of those contracts. 
uh, I guess they're going to have to pay the price to get uh, get out from under the Monaghan deal. But I think they've done a terrific job of uh, of uh, reconfiguring uh, their team. They've sort of expanded the Sutter window, which you know, which is definitely compete now. You don't think uh, Daryl Sutter is concerned about uh, the end other end of Uberdell or Cadre's contracts? I sure don't. And so I'm not sure I'm too concerned about the other. I'm going to be 75 by the time Udo's contract runs down. You know, <laughs> I'm worried about next year. And right now I'm worried about the Flames. And just to, to complete your, your uh, respond to your thought about the uh, Calgary's defensive weakness, I'm thinking of Flames fan probably thinks about the same thing uh, this offseason about uh, the bad luck and bad timing of the injury to Chris Tanev, that Oilers fans might be thinking about uh, the one to Darnell Nurse that sort of had him, you know, he was in the lineup, but he wasn't really able to to do what he does. And I think that was definitely the case with Tanev. And now there's a distinct possibility that, you know, not only will Tanev be back and healthy, but he will have a new partner, and that partner will be Mackenzie Weger, and that will be one fine defense pair. Yeah. Um, you mentioned the Huberto and Uyghur contracts, Bruce. I, I've been working on a piece, which I'm going to be writing tomorrow, on the best bargain contracts in the NHL. And um, I'll just quickly go down a list of the ones I think are the best. So uh, of the forwards, I think Huberto's, like, I was really focused um, on bargains related to the best players. I think you win Stanley Cups by having really – a, a number like six, seven, eight, really, really good hockey players. So I'm not so worried about like whether you're you're getting a great deal on a fourth liner or a third pairing D-man, that kind of thing. Like let's say I, I'm I'm thinking about like which great players are really bargains. And right now the the biggest bargain I could find was uh, J T Miller in Vancouver, who is a fantastic hockey player, and he's earning 5.3 million this uh, coming season. So um. He 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 represented probably the best for a forward, and then Nathan McKinnon, who gets six point three million Bruce next year, and is obviously one of the the best players in the world, um, the best two or three. You know he's you know Makar McKinnon, Drysaddle, uh, McDavid are the, the the four guys that stand out for me. Maybe Hedman uh, might be on that list as well. Um, Elias Lindholm in Calgary is also a great bargain. He gets $4.9 million a year, and he's a fantastic hockey player. Huberto is on the list, and then Dreisaitl. Um, and, and Leon, is he gets $8.5 million, but I, I think he's still arguably $3 million, $4 million underpaid um, a, a year based on his level of performance. Shifley is another bargain contract for forwards. Um, and McDavid. I think McDavid, if I'm not mistaken, was it 15 million a year he could have signed for Bruce? Um, yeah, it sounds about maximum right. contract. 20% of the of the salary cap, and it was around 75 at that time, I believe. The 15 million figure was floating around, and he took 12.5. And the rumor at the time was that the Oilers were going to sign for 13.25, and uh, he took a little bit less. And whether they wound up putting that towards dry saddle, well, that wound up being another bargain contract in the end. A lot of people were saying, well, McDavid cheap, but Leon was too much. Well, I think if you ask that same question now, you'd say, well, they both deliver pretty good value on uh, 
even though they have huge contracts. I mean, they're they're just such massively important players on this team. Yeah. yeah. So with was, the with the goalies, I didn't find a ton of bargains. Like there's there's a number that it, that that look like they're bargains. Tristan Jari, he earns um, 3.5 million, and he had a really good year last year. Ilya Sorokin on the island, he earned four million, and again had a really good year. Uh, Freddie Anderson. 4.5 million had a really good year. Um, but it was the biggest bargain, Bruce, in the NHL, I'm going to argue, is unfortunately on the Colorado Avalanche. It's Devon Taves. He, $4.1 million, Bruce. And he he's he is definitely in the top five uh, D-men in the NHL right now. He's a fantastic hockey player, offensively and defensively. So Taves... Uh, Kale McCarr, I think even at nine million a year is is a is a huge bargain for the Avs. Like I I, I see him as a twelve thirteen million dollar a year player, the way he can perform. Uyghur this coming year is a huge bargain. Um, Damon Severson of um, the New Jersey Devils is has become quite a good hockey player, and he only earns four point two million. Uh, Brent Pesci and Jacob Slavin of the Hurricanes are both underpaid, I think. Uh, compared to their value, Pesci earns just four million a year, and Slavin five point three million a year. So um, I'll leave it there for the defenseman. So um, you know, on the list, there's I, I think Drysaddle is the only Oiler who really qualifies. Maybe McDavid. If if it was fifteen million, I think you know whatever it was, McDavid could have got paid the maximum, and you could make an argument he was worth it. A strong argument. He certainly could have got that amount of money. On a, um, if he had wanted it. And um, so I'm going to go with, with those contracts for the Oilers. The Athletic did an article uh, a couple months back, now Don Lucision of the Athletic, where they did the, what they call player cards. And one of the highlight features to me on those player cards was uh, was actual value compared to cap hit. Yeah. And, now, I can't say I agreed with all of Dom's valuations of certain players, but he had McDavid at $20 million against 12.5. So, so then he's the biggest bargain. That would make him the biggest. Well, well, I don't know what McCarr. Austin Matthews at 20, $22 million, I think, based on last year, uh, against 11.634, I believe, his cap, cap hit. And didn't he write an article about the worst contracts and not have John yeah. Tavares on the list? Uh, I think so. Yeah, yeah that that was that was kind of interesting. He had all the high-priced defensemen from the summer of Nurse, with yeah. uh, actually the summer of Seth Jones, which I'm still well little iffy about. But Seth Jones, Zach Wierenski, and Darren Nurse were all on this list, and they all signed within weeks of each other, long, long-term deals in the nine-plus million-dollar range, and he's listed all three of them. So. Uh, Anyway, uh, I, I did like I said I don't agree with all his valuations, but it did make for a very interesting thing to say. Well, what what is this player making versus what are the statistics in this formula suggest that his value is? And uh, you know, it's it's a, it's a guideline as opposed to anything hard and fast. But uh, there was um, there's some interesting names on that list. I did not ever see a list that showed that. You had to sort of flip through the individual cards, so it was a little bit... Yeah. I didn't do, like, all, all 32. Didn't teams. look at all of them, yeah. You know, it's funny, like... It's really hard at the orders. 
Austin Matthews is is obviously a really good, great. He's a fantastic hockey player, great goal scorer, and and I think he's also seen as a solid defensive hockey player. So, but I've I've seen Austin Matthews play a lot, Bruce. Mm-hmm. I've never had that feeling like he's in McDavid's class or, or close to it. Like honestly, he's he's a very good hockey. He's a he's a good hockey player. He's a great hockey player, but he's nowhere close to Connor McDavid. The only player. Who have ever, I have ever watched in the NHL in the last 10 years, who I think, well, then you know, there's Crosby who's a different player, so he'd be included in that list. So just set him aside because he's almost from a different era. But the only player who, who right now, let's say, who comes close to McDavid in terms of his talent, le- level of talent and what he brings is Kale McCarr. Watching Kale McCarr was electrifying. He, he, in his own way, is such a special hockey player. And so is McDavid. I just don't you know, Matthews is a really good hockey player. He's a great hockey player. And and I don't know what statistics he's Dom's using to conjure up, you know, that Matthews is a better hockey player, like or has more value than McDavid. I don't, whatever they are, I don't buy them um, the way they're being used. I don't see it. I just don't see it. Well, I'll, come, I'll bring back uh, memories of, uh, I think it was May 14th, Saturday night. Uh, game seven in Toronto, where they lost 2-1 to Tampa Bay, followed by game seven in Edmonton, where they won 2-0 over Los Angeles. And the way that McDavid brought his game up to like 11 out of 10 level, really, uh, that night, he was just phenomenal. I think, I think I graded that game and I did give him a 10, even though it was only two goals scored, because he, you know, the, the just his game transcended the Kings. And I did not see that kind of game that night against Austin Matthews, mind you, playing against the two-time Stanley Cup champs. And that's an unfair comparison in one sense, but geez, game seven, you know, it's everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I think I think there's a debate to be had between Matthews and Dreisaitl, like who's a more valuable, who's a better player. I think that's, a, that's more in the ballpark. But when we're talking about these kind of, McDavid, McCarr kind of players like they're they're just in a different category. Maybe it's just because they're they're so visually stunning to watch them, and maybe I'm overly swayed by that. Someone could say, "Oh, you're just you're just so impressed by the the fancy moves and the," but you know when you look at you know the hard facts of performance and results, you know it's much closer than that. So that that might be a critique of what I'm saying, but I just man that Kale McCarr he is he is an unreal hockey player, and so is Connor McDavid. So. Well, McCarr did a very rare feat that you don't see very often in the playoffs this year when he literally went through a wrinkle in space-time to stay onside <laughs> against the Oilers. For an absolutely critical goal in that series. <laughs> that was the sort of stuff you expect from Wayne Gretzky, maybe, you know, but Kale McCarr did it. So. Uh-huh. Well, it happens regularly on Star Trek. So I, I'm, I watched that series. I know what can happen, and uh, we saw it there. All right. Uh... <laughs> Sam Gagne, Bruce, Sam Gagne. I'm going to start off on this one because I don't, I know people are excited about the orders bringing in Sam Gagne, like the idea that he can, and Kurt Levins of Cult Hockey brought up this idea in his uh, nine things column on the weekend. I'm not in that camp. And with the cadre signing, I'm even less in that camp. And some people are penciling in Sam Gagne, Sam Gagne at fourth line center. Like I've never seen Sam Gagne excel as a center defensively. Uh, um, 
taken I don't know what his latest face off numbers are. Maybe he's he's got he's he's finally figured out. What is it? Forty six point seven percent. All right. He's he just he like as a winger, if you needed a if you needed a fourth line winger, I'd be yes. thinking, Oh yeah, okay. That makes sense. He 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 had two points per sixty, or maybe a little bit more than two points per sixty. He's an inter like I get that. If you needed a winger, like a, a bottom line winger, and I'm sure like his defensive games improved considerably. I have no doubt about that compared to the, you know, the young Sam Gagne who was really lost on defense when he was with the Oilers. You know, he, he saw himself as a first or second line center then, and he was often on the wrong side of the puck. That's changed. It changed in his last time in Edmonton. He was a much better defensive player. But Bruce, if they need, if they're looking for a fourth line center, like someone who can play that role, and I think they actually should be. That should, if they're bringing in another player, that's not a bad idea. Like a, a if they're bringing in a grinder kind of player, why not? Why not look for somebody who can play center? Because then then you know for sure he can play the wing. I just don't see the fit mm-hmm. in terms of Sam Gagne with the Edmonton Oilers. I'd much rather they keep a figure out a way to have Dylan Holloway in the lineup, who played center in college. You can play the wing, and is fast and young and. Um, I think would be he looked like he was a strong defensive center to me, um, Dylan Holloway as a as a college player. I know it's much more difficult in the NHL. It's really hard, but um, that's my only critique. I just don't see the fit, even if even as I would like the player as a winger. Yeah, well, my guess is that they're really only looking at him as a winger. Yeah. I mean, Detroit, did you? He took 300 face-offs in Detroit last year. He played 81 games in Detroit, uh, matching his uh, career high uh, and more than he ever played in any one year in Edmonton. Uh, he got 81 in Arizona, 81 in Columbus, now 81 in Detroit. Uh, he had his 11th season of 30-plus points. And near as I can tell, he did. He largely did that from a depth role. He played 13 minutes a night. You know, that sounds like third line minutes he played almost two and a half minutes per game on the penalty kill in Detroit last year that really surprised me too and uh, uh, they experimented with him on the PK the year before and then last year went full bore now I don't know that his results were that great I don't know how but clearly you know he he has broadened his game uh, which when he came in was uh, uh, very much a you know the offensive Wizard and the Oilers, uh, uh, in retrospect, and, and most people said at the time, was uh, to bring him in at just turned 18. He was one of the youngest players in that draft class in 2007. To put him right in the NHL uh, maybe uh, wasn't the best thing for his development. Uh, that said, uh, uh, for the role that the, that he might fit, uh, I don't hate it. Uh, you know, a depth guy that can actually put the puck in the net. I mean, if if you think of him in terms of, this is a guy who goes on the roster who's replacing Kyle Turris, but he's going to do it at half the money, play twice as many games, and score four times as many points. <laughs> That's a strong argument. Then, uh, then I don't mind it. The fact that he can take faceoffs with a right-handed stick, you know, if he does strictly strong side faceoffs and plays on, on the line with, a, you know, somebody who takes the left side dots and he takes the right side dots, he might at least be able to hold his own uh, in, in that uh, in, in that function. 
it, it's an interesting uh, uh, idea. Of course, he's been here twice now. And unfortunately, uh, the trade that sent him away from Edmonton the second time, just before the playoff run of 2020, well, just that deadline of 2020, the playoff run was actually six months later after COVID. But that trade where they sent him to get his cap hit out uh, to make room for Andrew Sassanacio's cap hit, and then, oh, yeah, we'll send two second-round draft choices to uh, Detroit, uh, which just, I'll, I'll add a little sting in your in your day, David, that two second-round draft picks was basically identical to the price Colorado played the following fall to get Devin Caves. <laughs> How many problems would he have solved from uh, Islanders? Uh... The Oilers got nine games out of Athanasio. Yes, stuff went sideways. He got hurt, COVID hit. Uh, the cap changed, and all of a sudden his qualifying offer was too steep. I think they made the right decision to move on from him, but that was the right decision was to swallow the bullet on what proved to be a big mistake. But I also think that, you know, that playoffs of 2020, Sam Gagne might have been more help to the orders than Aston C was. I think they missed him. Uh, I think he would have been. Yeah. So, yeah. That, you know, and he wound up playing 126 games for Detroit with two two cheap years compared to the nine games that the Oilers got for Athanasio. And, of course, we have no idea how many games those two second-round picks will play, but I'm going to bet you that a lot more of those games will be with Detroit than they will be with Edmonton. <laughs> now, we don't know, Bruce, what role Sam Gagne played on the PK and whether he was individually okay, but we do know that Detroit had the worst PK in the NHL. Huh. In the NHL last I'm season, I'm going to so. research that more. I'm going to, I'm going to be right. Seventy-three point eight percent. Contextualize it, but they, they, yeah, he was Fair on for a lot of goals against personally, and I think they all were. I just don't think they had a good, good situation there. Yeah. So anyway, like he's, you know, on the plus side, there's, there's the whole chemistry thing, which I was talking about earlier. Holland, may, Ken Holland, may be thinking about that. Who yep. he's thinking? Who do we have a? We might have a situation where we need a thirteenth forward. He's thinking, and that player's going to have to go back and forth between Bakersfield and Edmonton, depending on cap situations. He's going to have to be able to play all forward positions to fit in when he is in Edmonton, and he's got to fit in on the team happily. He's got to be a positive person in the dressing room. He can't ever get down. He's got to be there. He's got to have mental toughness. He's got to be glad to be here, thrilled to be here. The players have to know him. He's got to fit in. So, man, that that checks a lot of boxes with Sam Gagne right there. So that, so that might be the main thinking. And again, that's solid thinking. There, there's something to be said for that rather than, well, who's the player that you could get who would be the best possible in a fantasy NHL? You know, who's got the best points per 60 and the, the best this, that, and the other thing and the best shot shares and the best that, this, that, and the other thing? But if that player doesn't fit in, it's a mess. It's a mess. He's not going to have good results in Edmonton. He's not going to put up good points per 60 numbers because he just he's not going to get that opportunity. So in that regard, Sam Gagne, Sam Gagne might be a very good pick. I, I just and I'm probably just reacting to someone suggesting I can't even remember who that he would be the center. I can't remember oh, who's I don't saying see. that. Yeah, but you know they already you know they have. A very similar player in Derek Ryan right now, um, yeah, who 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 is already a center and is good at faceoffs. So, um, anyway, I'm, I'm I, that's that's my thought on it. Like I'm I'm more reacting to something that was said, which is not a really good way to 
to comment on things than, than thinking up through all the pros and cons. So in the end, if they sign this player, I will understand. I think it'll be for the reasons I just outlined. Um, is that he 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 might not be the right fit to play center, but he might be definitely the right fit for the particular difficult role um, they're going to need a player or players to to fit in with. So Holloway may be a better player on the Oilers if he gets the opportunity, but Gagne it might be better for Dylan Holloway to spend the whole year you know in the AHL and truly get play center, top line center for Bakersfield, get that down at the AHL level, you know, be healthy for, for a full year, nail that before he gets his uh, NHL edition. And in the meantime, you know, you're not moving him up and down and confusing him and upsetting him, a younger player, but you have this veteran who knows what it's all about and is just doing that role. So. Well, I mentioned Carl Turris. Here's, here's another player. And this is a guy who was brought in last year on uh-huh. the PTO, who, uh, which is by some reports, Turris? What, what the Oilers would offer, uh, Gagne is a PTO, not necessarily. But no, Turris wasn't a PTO. Last year they brought in Colton Sevier. This is. Oh, oh you said. Oh, oh, okay. Turris. Oh, okay. Uh, and he, uh, Colton Sevier came in with five, 32 years old, 500 NHL games under his belt, and he had zero 30 point seasons and roughly that amount of offense. Like, you know, he. He looked like a player, you know, he went around, he did, did stuff, but none of that stuff seemed to involve putting the puck in the net. And so if you're, to, you know, if you're looking for a mortar between the bricks, uh, there's different ways to go about it. But if you, you know, if you're saying, well, Sam Gagne needs to be uh, something he's not, then he's not going to be it. But if you're saying he, you, you've got a couple of spaces at the bottom of your organization where you previously filled in with Kyle Turris and, and, uh, uh, Colton Sevier, you know, then, you know, that's sort of where he's at, maybe a better version of those guys. So Yeah, maybe. And uh, so you were bringing up tourists, not in a good way, but is it? Uh, no, well, I, th- I think Gagne would be a, would be a big improvement at that. Okay. At way lower cost. In the yeah, case tr- of Sevier, he got the absolute NHL minimum, so there's no cost saving. But the thing is about all of these guys at the bottom of the roster, uh, when you're when you're juggling around, people say, "Well, how can the Oilers afford that?" Well, they they afford as many players as they need to have on the roster, and the guys that are at the minimum or just above the minimum are interchangeable, right? You can sign twenty of those guys; they're not all twenty going to be on your team. Going to be, you know, and they go up and down. You lose one on waivers, you place them with another one. You know, it's uh, it's immaterial. The, the the where the cap problem comes in is what you pay in excess of the league minimum to a given player, or especially dead cap, which has killed Edmonton for a long time now. Um, and got the guys that are getting paid the minimum are almost inconsequential. Like they're, 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 yeah. they're, they're pawns in, in, the, in the chess game of salary cap. And that from a cap perspective, they're almost the same as each other. You can sign as, you can sign a, ton of them like you could sign four or five guys like that mm-hmm, sure and yeah, uh, yeah. sam gagne can win. sam gagne can take and make a pass still at the nhl level and um you know sevier was struggling with that in the end and um tourists he could still do that but his defensive play was just never even close to uh remotely close to what was certainly hoped out of him as the third line center so 
That was a really tough one. Maybe costly. Especially, uh, especially you know, his pay rate. Yeah. Uh, they, they paid him 900000 above the minimum. And they could have easily replaced him at least similar quality at, uh, at the minimum. Difficulty, so. All right, Bruce. Um, Darnell Nurse, the mm-hmm. Jay Woodcroft was on Oilers now, and Jay Woodcroft was saying that Nurse is on the ice, Dry Settles on the ice. They're both working hard. He expects both of them 100% for training camp, which was really good news. Excellent news. The is it torn hip flexor injury that uh, Darnell Nurse had through the playoffs? It was rumored he was going to need surgery. Uh, a number of insiders were saying that, and it was a, the talk was of, of the sports hernia. Just just briefly looking up hip fle- torn hip flexor. I guess it's highly unusual that surgery is necessary for that particular injury. It's great news that he doesn't need surgery. That Darnell Nurse is just recovering on his own, and it sounds like Dry Settle is as well. And um, I think I've said this before on the podcast. I just wanted to reiterate. I, I've, you know, I was quite critical of how much I, I was thinking the orders might uh, sit Nurse out. He was playing so poorly at one point in the playoffs, and even Drysaddle. Um, but uh, I just, in, in the end, um, you know, their injuries were significant in the Oilers not being able to give the Avs a really good game. Absolutely critical. In that, that those guys, they just were not quick enough to keep up with a very fast Avs team. And it was particularly difficult for Nurse on defense where he just got exposed and exploited repeatedly. Um, I've been reevaluating that, my critique of that. And I, and I do think it was, in the end, uh, important that they keep playing. And, and, it, and, it's, and it's driven home by this book, again, on these great coaches that I'm reading. You just see the amount of commitment and and team building that it takes to win a Stanley Cup and the amount of sacrifice from all the individuals involved. It is not an easy thing. It's unbelievably difficult. And the example that Nurse and Drysaddle just set in playing through excruciating pain and injury, I think will go a long way in kind of setting a team culture for the Oilers. And again, these are things some people laugh at, right? Well, just go listen to NHL coaches um, describe in detail how they won a Stanley Cup. And... um, just maybe take seriously think about what they're saying and try to take it seriously because i don't think they're just idiots i think these people are actually the ones who want a cup and um and it's also the players who won talking about that experience this is the kind of thing that comes up repeatedly these these aspects of self-sacrifice and leadership um are crucial to the team through that process so this that drove home for me just what how significant that might be in terms of the Oilers um, having the right mindset this coming season and, and in coming seasons heading going into the plus when they're, they are going to be tested like just unbelievably, it's going to be unbelievably difficult for the Oilers to succeed. But this is the kind of, these are the kinds of things that will help them do that. Yeah, well, there's, there's lots of uh, discussion complaints about nurse's contract i mean people have been complaining about his next contract for for years uh, yeah even when he was delivering huge value at first uh, 3.2 million and then uh, good value at 5.6 well he may have met his match at 9.25 but the fact the orders kicked the can down the road a couple of times and then that perfect storm developed with the seth jones situation um Lorenzo. 
Yeah. That. He got what he got. Well, now the next contract is here, and we are finally having to live with that. Uh, at the same time, I mean, Nurse's father to the team uh, was extremely apparent last year in the second half of the season when uh, after after Jay Woodcroft and Dave Manson took over the ship and they totally realigned the Edmonton's defensive structure when they put your man Cody Cece with uh, with Nurse and they tasked them with uh, by far the lion's share of playing the toughest players on, on the other team and Nurse's matchups against uh, elite opponents, especially in the second half of the of the year, you know, mostly in the second half of the year. But I think even when you chart it for the whole year on puck IQ, Nurse played more percentage of his minutes against top level opponents than any other NHL defenseman. And in the Woodcroft time, it was over 50% of his minutes. And what that enabled them to do, and especially, you know, it was smart to put CeCe with him, it enabled them to put both of their offensive right shot defensemen, Tyson Berry and Evan Bouchard, who had been sort of Nurse's alternating partners and struggling against the Tufts, all of a sudden they were playing against a lot of second and even third tier opponents and they and their pairings started to light it up. And in the meantime, Nurse and Cece, who were getting the tough minutes, they lit it up and all three sets of defensemen were outscoring by significant margins under, under uh, Woodcroft and uh, Manson. And to me, the key to that was, was Nurse and Cece soaking up those uh, tough minutes and succeeding in them. So there's, you know, Nurse has his critics, and some of the criticisms are definitely valid. Uh, but sometimes I think you got to take a little bit step back and look at the you know, look at the team picture. Where does he fit on the team picture? Well, to me, if you take a team picture of the Oilers, you have McDavid standing in the middle, and you have Drysaddle standing on one side of him, and you have Nurse standing on the other side, and they all got letters on their sweaters, and they're all, uh, you know, key contributors. They do different things, but uh, um, you know, they're basically the face, the face of the Edmonton Oilers, and I don't know. To me, they're they're easy guys to root for, frankly. Yeah, given his quality of competition, Bruce, given his time on ice in crucial situations, his productivity, which is pretty good on the attack, um, Nurse is clearly a top 10 defenseman. He's the number one defenseman in the NHL on, on his team. And he's he's in the top 10, I think, in the NHL. And he has been for a couple of years now. And if he can maintain that, um, that'll be, no one's going to be complaining about his contract. And there's a chance he will be. I think he's going to be 34 when the contract runs out. It's not unheard of for players to keep playing strong hockey until they're 34 years of age. He's not signing this when he's 31 or 32. Like, he's not Nazem Kadri. This isn't an eight-year deal going to a player who's 32. He's he's a younger guy, and, um, you know, I don't expect he'll be a number one, you know, a top 10 NHL D-man when he is 33, 34, 35. That's, that's sometimes happens, but it's usually with better players than Darnell Nurse starts out as. But, you know, there's the true superstars, which he is not. But he is a he is a number one D-man by any standard, I think, and he's a good one. Bruce, let's finish up by talking about some of the prospects. Uh, we're writing about the prospects, and and we can kick it off, like, segue from Nurse. I think the owners um, really started to have a focus under Craig McTavish. McTavish thought the team, I think, was too small, 
and he wanted some good big players. And in, in the two years he was running the draft, I think he was the GM these two years, they, they drafted Darnell Nurse and Leon Dreisaitl back to back. That's, so that's Craig McTavish's rather significant, unbelievable contribution to the success of the Edmonton Oilers. And since that time, the Oilers have really focused. They've, it's, they've almost, almost every draft, not everyone, but almost everyone, they've drafted what I refer to as the big, they've added to the big boys brigade. This, these huge defensemen, um, they're not all similar, but they're all really big. You know, we're talking 6'3", 200 pounders at, at least. Mm-hmm. And um, we we both in our prospect series, we, we, we both wrote about a, uh, one of them in, in the, you wrote about Phil Kemp yeah. and I wrote about uh, Luca Munzenberger. And on the list right now, um, some of these big boys have not worked out for the others. William Loggison's gone. Ziet Pygan is gone. Philip Berryland's gone. But there's still a number of them who are in, in the system. So this includes 6'7", 230-pound Vincent DeHarnay, 6'6", 190-pound Marcus Niemelainen, 6'3", 200-pound Dmitry Samarukov, 6'3", 200-pound Phil Kemp, 6'3", 195-pound Evan Bouchard, 6'5", 215-pound Michael Kesselring, 6'3", 200-pound Philip Brobury, 6'3", 200-pound Luca Munzenberger, and 6'3", 185 pounds. He's just uh, 19 still, Maximus Wanner. It's a lot of players, Bruce. Now, the three of them are high draft picks. Um, I mentioned Nurse um, Bouchard, who have both made it already, and Brobury, who looks like he's going to make it. But it's if they can just get one or two of these guys yeah. to pan out, as big, tough, uh, depth players. And I think there's a good chance of that um, with this group of people, the way they're trending. Who, so of that list, who would you pick? Well, let's just start with Cap. What do you think of Cap? Uh, I I think he's close to reaching his level, to be honest with you. And I, I'm not sure that, uh, uh, that he's got NHL game. He has a lot of very positive attributes. Uh, Philip Kemp, you know, he's a uh, very smart guy. Went to Yale. Uh, been strongly touted for his leadership uh, uh, capabilities. He he was the captain of the U.S. Uh, development team program under 17, under 18 uh, at a time that they had some pretty brilliant players in that uh, in that group. And uh, he's. Um, uh, you know he's big. He's a right shot. There's a whole lot to like about him. Uh, I I've I haven't seen him good as a skater, and uh, in particular, just some of the fine points. Uh, you know the crossover steps, the uh, uh, the ability to uh, uh, you know first step in particular. And I have an idea that uh, you know I've seen a couple of plays where you know he's been exposed by by uh, a faster, better skater. And I think at the NHL level, that that uh, that can be just a, a huge weakness. Uh, I do, you know, if he were to make it, surely the upside is as a third pairing uh, D-man. But uh, as you say, you know, you you, you have an, you take enough shots at this. Uh, I, I like the thrust of your po- post that you know they, they they don't need them all to make it. They need one or two guys to to beat the odds. And make it, and you know, fill out a defense core that you know already has you know some pretty pretty strong players uh, within it. And 
so he, to me, he's, I mean, we had him ranked number 19 and we have not yet posted on some of these other guys for reasons that they're probably uh, trending a little, little higher than him at this point. Yeah. So I wrote on Luca Munzenberger and we just, I was able to see him play two games and he was really good against Switzerland. He plays a very aggressive, assertive game. He's up in their face. Then he tried the same against Finland and he got burnt a couple times because the Finns are, if you're too aggressive, they punish you for it because they can pass that puck so well. So he's an interesting player. Like he's, he has a reputation of being an absolutely uh, ferocious hitter, which I like. I, I thought with Kemp that I would see more of that kind of super ruggedness. And I've never, I, I don't see that in his game. He's more of a smart player, Kemp. And um, I, I agree with your assessment. I think he's, um, he and Wanner, who are the lowest rated prospects of the ones I've just mentioned, are the least likely to make it and you know Munzenberger we have 17th overall so he's got a chance um but you know he he, you know compared to some of these other guys I mean Marcus Niemelainen is obviously very close he played already in the NHL he's um he's absolutely enormous he skates really well and he hits like a freight train but can he can he move the puck well enough? Like he, even at the HL level, he was one of the weaker puck movers. So that might give an edge to a player like Samarukov, for instance, um, over over him this coming year. Deharnay, I, I haven't seen play that much. Um, he's 26. He's the biggest of these players, but he had just a great year in the AHL. You know, if you go by his plus minus and what what everybody said of said of his play, so. You know, these are players we're going to write about and dig in a little deeper. Deharnay, Nimaline, and Samarukov, Castle Ring in the uh, in the days to come in this prospect series. But I just find it interesting. That there's so many of them, and I like it. I like the strategy. I think it's um, I think it's a good good idea. Like, and in, in terms of if you, if you can if these guys can skate well enough to hang in there, move the puck well enough, you know, that could help you beat the Avs. You know, having these a big shutdown third pairing kind of guy who can hang in there, that could be big. You know, who can who can, you know, and I'm thinking Nima Line in here specifically. Like if he can figure it out, or or you know, Samarukov, if these guys can figure it out, that could be that could be a pretty huge thing for the Edmonton Oilers. Yeah, well, figuring it out is the thing. I mean, Weiner, I wrote about him as just outside our top twenty, but pretty positively about how he trended over the course of his nineteen year old season. Yeah. You know, he just seemed to get better and better based on the limited statistics that we had. Uh, he, he became more and more uh, important to that team in his, well, actually 18 to 19-year-old season. He's still got another year left of, of, uh, of junior hockey. And those guys, it's, it's hard to project. Like, you, you can look at them and say, well, most of these guys probably will top out at, you know, at minor pro or, you know, with a few cups of coffee at the NHL level and then every once in a while you got a Colton Pareko that comes down the, the, the pipe that doesn't even get drafted at age 18 yeah he's taken in mid rounds at age 19 and he's a nobody and then all of a sudden oh where'd they get that huge guy playing defense for them all over the ice you know and you just I mean you really hope you get one like that but yeah, I think it's reasonable to expect that out of that list that was it close to ten guys, yeah, you're going to get one or two NHL caliber players out of it, and that's where you know uh, redundancy is a good thing. You have a few of them, and you hope that that that, that one or or uh, 
probably best case two of them pan out. Pareko six six two thirty. Whew. Yeah. Yeah. So uh I like to think uh Order Scouts would have an eye on that guy at some point. Uh just didn't just did not happen, eh? Two hundred such as life first. He was taken in the third round. Like in, in his, the second in his, year uh, of eligibility. In the second year of eligibility, taken in the third round. So they by then he had been noticed. I think he grew a lot that one second season. Year for the Oil Barons before he went to U Alaska. He really uh he really took off. He went from twelve points to forty two. And he you know, he was uh clearly a, a big player in the oil barons at that time, as I recall, were a pretty darn good team and he was part of it. Anyway, it's it's like 18, especially when you're talking about big guys, and this is forwards as well. Oh, some of these big guys just take more time. The Oilers drafted, uh, this was in another, so right now I'm calling them the big boys brigade. In, in the past, they, they were on the same kind of kick, but with forwards, drafting these huge forwards. And that year they drafted two of them ahead of Colton Pareko, Mitch Moraz, who just did not come close uh, as to, uh, in the second round, 32nd overall, Mitch Moraz, Oil Kings, Edmonton Oil Kings player. And then in the uh, early in the third round, they took Jujar Kara, who became a who has become a decent NHL player and would be would be a much, far more effective player. But injuries have really taken us, you know, really uh, set him back in his career, which is unfortunate because there was times when Jujar Kara looked like he could become a really solid uh third line NHL center came close to doing it and then he just kept getting the concussions and the injuries and I, I think that's continued in Chicago I haven't followed his career that closely so at least one serious injury. Bruce you also wrote about um, Maxim Berejokin is that his name oh yeah Maxim Berejokin or Berejokin Brezhnev. We don't know how to spell his name, let alone pronounce it. Yes, there's two different spellings. We don't know of how it. big he is. Uh, we don't know if he's a um, uh, a guy who can't score a lick, like he showed with one goal in 61 games, official games in the KHL, or the guy who filled the net against his peers as a uh, uh, in the MHL, which is Russia's version of Major Junior. And the last two years, he split his time between the two teams. And the reason that he was on uh, uh, Lokomotiv Yaroslavl was that team. And the reason that he, he was on that team is the Russian League has this, uh, what they call the young players rule. And that is if you have a teenage player, junior eligible player, uh, you can have extra, they create an extra roster spot for him. So you can carry a 21st or even 22nd player on game night. If one of them is 20 or younger and one of them is 19 and younger, well, he's gone through two years of being that guy on their roster in, in Locomotive. And he played five minutes a night one year, seven minutes a night the other year. He was basically a fifth liner sitting on the bench. And if something happened or if the game got into garbage time, he might get a few shifts. But there was... Uh, I mean, obviously, we don't have the, the level of statistical coverage. I can't tell you whose line mates were, you know, what situations and games he got in. But it's pretty easy to, to speculate that a, a kid that's a 13th forward uh, is probably not going to play a whole lot in a, in a highly competitive game. Unless he's a star, and I'm clearly he's not. But he's pretty darn good. 
Like he was third in the MHL last year in points per game after being 10th the year before. Like he's, he's showing uh, real progress there. And uh, now he's he's aged out. And he's aged out in two important ways. He's too old for the MHL, so he's going to be a pro. And he's too old for this young player's role. So he's whatever he does, he's going to do it on merit. So if he makes locomotive in the KHL, which obviously would be ideal, he's going to be on one of the four lines as opposed to being that guy who can roll cobwebs on the bench. And if they wind up sending him down to the high minors, which in Russia is the BHL, then uh, he'll get a lot of ice time and, and uh, a chance to develop his game. So I, I think this is a player we're going to know a whole lot more about a year from now after two fairly similar years of being, you know, bounced around. Uh, we haven't got room for you on the team tonight, so we're going to send you back to uh, to local juniors to play a couple of games, you know, and, but he, he was never really settled in, in one spot. So, but he's huge, uh, very huge, if you believe the KHL. Um, measurements of 6'4", uh, 216 pounds, uh, winger with skill, and maybe slow boots, and that's sort of the biggest concern when you're thinking of NHL. All right, Bruce. Uh, the book that I that I was talking about uh, on the hockey coaches, it's I, I want to recommend it. I'm listening to it on Audible, and um, it's a little distracting because the narrator tries to impersonate the voices of the different coaches and he <laughs> does a really bad job. Like I know how Todd McClellan sounds and I know how these, some of these different coaches, and he doesn't, he doesn't sound like them very much. So it's, it's quite distracting in that way, but it's a, it's full of great stories. I don't know if you've ever read the book or it's behind the bench inside the minds of hockey's greatest coaches. It came out in 2017 and it's written by Craig Custance who is the athletics editor in chief for the NHL US. So he um he spent time with them. They, what he did was he would watch the game where they they clinched the championship with them then they'd watch the highlights of the game and they talk about the team and about that game and uh, it's it, for people who like hockey books and I I I love hockey books the best ones I just find them uh really interesting. This is this is a, a highly recommended book uh from Custance. One other recommendation is um, Brad Holland gave an interview with Bob Stauffer this week. Brad Holland's the newly appointed assistant GM of the Oilers. He's Ken Holland's son. So, you know, there's some people who are skeptical of that. I, I would say, um, obviously, Brad Holland's benefited by the fact that his dad is a big hockey person. You know, doors open in that regard. But uh, I'm going to say this is he comes across as someone who if he maybe got some opportunities because of his last name is getting promotions because of his his uh his his ability he he comes across as extremely sharp dynamic on the ball uh kind of in touch with information um about the league about uh hockey uh, he doesn't like to call it analytics he calls it data data bit, bit, change that yeah. word change that word get rid of the word coursey rebrand yeah, rebrand. Um, it's got a. It's an People very hear old. the word analytics and the hackles immediately arise. Like it's it's a it's a gut reaction. It's information. Yeah, it's information. And yeah, it's not a magic word, either good or bad. Anyway, he, uh, listen to the interview. I think you're you're going to come. Away, I I came away. I'll say I came away impressed with his. Um, 
the sharpness of his mind and the, the, the hoops that he's gone through already in his career to become uh, a, a solid hockey manager. Uh, I think the owners have a good, they, they have a keeper here. They came close to losing him this summer. I think I'm glad that they did not. He, he seems like he really adds to the organization and he speaks in a way and a manner which is fundamentally different than every other Oilers manager I've ever heard speak. Including Ken Holland. Including Ken Holland, Peter Shirelli, all the assistant GMs, all of the, like they all come across as kind of hockey people, hockey guys, even Shirelli, right, who went to Harvard and, um, you know, is a player agent. And But they all, they all seem to have kind of a very similar worldview in terms of hockey. Holland doesn't. He's more like a Woodcroft, like a hockey, like Mark Spector called Woodcroft a hockey nerd in an interview. And I remember seeing Woodcroft got his back up a little bit there, I thought, which is pretty rare for him. But it's it can also be a compliment. And I think it's, it is a compliment with both Woodcroft and Holland here. There's a couple hockey nerds on the Oilers staff here. And uh, we're like, we're two hockey nerds, obviously. And, you know, I hope I didn't insult you there, Bruce, but that's what we are. And, um, Many people listening to this podcast are also hockey nerds, so uh, it's it's interesting to see these kind of hockey nerds, these total, you know, they just love hockey information and uh, be, be rise up in the organization. It's a different time. It's the it's the rise of the nerds. <laughs> I think I read a post. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, Brad Holland, I've heard, I haven't heard this interview yet, but I'll listen to it today when I'm out walking. Uh, but I've heard at least two interviews and read uh, another extensive one on The Athletic. And I've just come away impressed each time. Like, he's got his stuff together. He's got his, uh, uh, you know, he's got, there's a real breadth uh, to him. Uh, and in that sense, he is like Jay Woodcroft. You know, like he's got a background in video. Well, that is so much uh, of a factor in today's hockey. I mean, Roger Nielsen started that trend, but it's just grown and grown. He's got a background in statistics and, and, and analysis. That too has got a, uh, a big part to play in modern hockey. And frankly, it's been an er- area where the Oilers have uh, uh, been a little behind the curve in, in my estimation from my nerd uh, desk. Uh, it's, um, and I, but I, he just talks in things that make sense. And in turn, he talked about his own relationship with his dad which obviously is pretty important, and he, and he got lots out of it from his dad. And he said at first his, his, he, his response was to come on too strong with his counter-arguments and that he had to sort of rein himself in a little bit to sort of take in the, the big picture view, which Ken Holland is very good at. And he is, um, uh, um, you know, he's growing himself and still, you know, a young uh, hockey executive and, and, you know, in the, in, the, in the current uh, state and on the way up there were other teams interested in him and they were interested with reason that uh, you know he's smart he's well educated he you know he's got um, he's got a lot going on and you mentioned that you know I mean his he had a foot in the door because his dad is in the game but so you you, you sort of wonder, well, what has he done on his own to earn that? Well, I'm, what I'm seeing and hearing, he's done a lot. I mean, you could say, 
Well, Matthew Kachuk had an advantage because his dad was an NHL player and he was hanging around NHL dressing rooms from the time he was six years old. You know, well, guess what? Matthew Kachuk can stand on his own two feet now and having that experience in his past actually has worked out in his favor. He was, you know, ready for the NHL when he, as soon as he got drafted, he was not intimidated in any way. He was just ready to roll. And obviously, you can't make too strong of a comparison on the management side of things, but uh, I don't see it as a negative that he's related to a to a long time, you know, successful NHL manager. I think that you know that's part of his background. He's got the Holland name, but he's also got the personal uh, effort that he made for the education and you know for his background. He worked in the league office for a while. He worked in the Toronto's. Uh, system for a couple of years and uh, he's now taken over a pretty important department for uh, uh, for the Oilers and uh, more power to him. Indeed. Indeed. Any thumbs up for you or thumbs down, Bruce? Um, Any final thoughts on anything? Uh, Last thoughts? Yeah, well, Last will and testament of this podcast? Yeah, yeah it's it's still August. We're watching still. Some of us are watching the World Juniors in its third and final attempt to uh, uh, to make a go of it in Edmonton. Our city's timing on this was so poor, just bad, really bad luck. And I mean, all three all three tournaments went sideways. We had no fans at the first one. We had no players at the second one because they actually did have a COVID breakout. <clears throat> now they have no hockey season for the third one. They're trying to do it in August. And I think that there is a few fundamental mistakes. The pricing is way out of line, and there's so many, um, so many of the top players pulled out, and the ones that are there, you know, we're talking now instead of the upcoming draft, we're talking about the one that's ten months down the road, and it's just so hard to drum up the interest. Uh, that said, I watched a couple of games yesterday, and they were, weren't bad games. So check there, beating USA in the late game was a real shocker. Well, maybe people will warm up to it in the end. Honestly, Bruce, I was so confused because people were starting to talk about this. I didn't know what the hell they were talking about. I had no idea that there was a World Junior Tournament until like a week ago that this was even going on. Like this was actually restaging it. So it was like, I don't know, is that I think I'm reasonably in touch with what's going on in the hockey world. Maybe I'm so oiler centric that I that I missed this, but um, I did miss it. And I did write a post about this about two weeks ago, but <laughs> yeah, I'm just it's just something I don't care about. Like I just and, and then they were there was two competing training camps and and the owners had a couple of players like yeah. Schaefer. He mm-hmm. wasn't he wasn't trying out for this team, I guess. He was trying out for the coming team and yes. same yeah. with Jake Chase on, yeah. Jake and Jake there. So it was just very the whole thing. And then like there's the whole um there's this horrible scandal hanging over the head of hockey Canada. I personally don't think that impacted, like just based on my own experience, not even knowing about this tournament. I just, I'm just extrapolating from that. Maybe I I don't think it helped, but I don't honestly think it hockey fans would go. If this was in December, I think they'd probably be going to these games and they just, it's just, it's not as it's not the right time for a hockey tournament. August is no one wants to be in a rink. Unless you're playing beer league hockey, is I still am. I went down to Red. I mean, we lost the tournament out of this too. The Linka Gretzky Cup that was supposed to be in Edmonton in 2018, 20, and 22. Well, the 18 tournament was great, 
And we saw in previews of Philip Broberry, Dylan Holloway, a bunch of other sort of NHL class star players, Bowen Byram and, and uh, uh, Alexis Lafreniere and, and uh, uh, Lucas Raymond and on and on. Uh, 2020 got completely cancelled in 2022 because of this world junior thing they have they decided no we'll host that in edmonton only and we'll move Malinka gretzky to red deer only well i went to a canada sweden game down there and to me that is august hockey like that's the way things are designed the world junior what's supposed to happen in august is either the summer showcase or this little camp you know where they're sort of doing a pre-camp for for next december's team like they did with uh with schaefer and uh uh, chase on and players of that ilk but in the middle of that if they're having another camp with the actual team that they're trying to reconstituting and it just it's just completely out of time and out of place and so it's hard to get into it and uh, that said i will be going to one game i'm going to the uh, bronze medal game with a uh, friend of the blog uh, original poza or to meet him in person finally after a few encounters on podcasts and and so forth so uh, uh get to see one game and actually see somebody win a medal in the process and uh, but it's hard to really get like really get immersed in it in august it's not hockey season i'm going to give a quick thumbs down to something else bruce there was a tweet from a ndp mp out of vancouver today benita zarillo which she has since deleted. So I'm just going to go from memory here. She was speculating about, do we really need indoor hockey arenas anymore? Like um, climate change is such a big issue that we've got to think hard about this hockey, whole hockey thing. <laughs> and um, my only comment is this, like, I, like it, we, I, I, I personally believe we have a solution to climate change and nuclear power. And if the NDP wants my respect on climate change issues, they will focus on the solutions like nuclear power, which they currently oppose, have opposed for for 20, 30 years now. Became a very trendy thing to oppose nuclear power um, based on a number of of incidents. And it's it's a complicated history. But the idea of dealing with climate change by shutting down hockey arenas and kids hockey and the ability of people to stay in shape physically active in the time of in a time of COVID, when COVID is going to be an ongoing issue for people coming from a party that opposes nuclear power it made me pretty furious like honestly so um thumbs down to her she's deleted her tweet since then i'm not surprised because i i imagine the reaction was just like what is going on so okay only two points one is that the tweet came from a person not a party and the second is I respect your decision to delete the tweet because I'm, I'm in agreement that that's kind of a wrong-headed, uh, maybe even knee-jerk uh, response. Yeah, she is a she is just a person. She is an MP. She's an elected MP, and mm-hmm. she's speculating on this. So, come on. All right, Bruce. We will. We usually don't venture into politics, but that was pretty on the nose when it came to hockey and something that I uh, like. I play hockey all summer, and I. I, I I heard and I don't I don't know if this is true that the city of Edmonton has looked at shutting down rinks more rinks in the summer because of of uh, climate change concerns. So I don't know if that's that's been debated or not. It's the kind of thing we're gonna that we will be debating we'll be debating in the years to come. So that's my two cents today on the matter. All right, Bruce, thanks for talking. Thanks for listening, everyone. And in the meantime, and in between times, this has been another edition of the Cult of Hockey podcast.